can we make the labor market change to benefit women rather than can we change women's or society's preferences? Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Lorenzo Lagos is an assistant professor in economics at Brown University and an ISEDE affiliate. He's a labor economist and studies how institutions and firm policies contribute to the persistence of racial and gender inequality. He spoke to me about the work he's conducting with Viola Corradini and Gary Marsharma. In this project, they study whether unions can help design workplaces that are better for women. Hi, Lorenzo. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Clementine. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk about your research. And I first wanted to discuss a little bit the sort of broader research topic that you focus on. So traditionally, when researchers in economics have been studying the origins of gender gaps in general, they looked at the role of culture, the role of family, public policies, discrimination. You and your co-authors decide to look more specifically at labor market institutions. Can you tell us a little bit how this came and like why you decided to focus on that particular aspect? Yeah, of course, the gender differentials that are well studied in economics are persistent, even very highly integrated labor markets. This idea that women's employment prospects and wages are worse than that of, of the racial similar men. And one big reason for that, you know, is that women face additional constraints when it comes to choosing whether to work and where to work. And these constraints can be biological, for in the case of mothers, the cost of bearing children. It can also be social, that there are a lot of gender norms and access to certain jobs. It is a big problem. Surveys indicate that 30% of adults, you know, cite work-life balance as a main challenge that working women face. So, as you mentioned, a set of possible solutions would be to either inform women of the costs, let's say, of having a child or, or trying to change gender norms in society. And these things tend to be, I think, high asks. It's hard to do, although there are ways of doing that. Another set of solutions that we found particularly interesting would be to explore how labor market institutions could be redesigned from within so that the trade-offs that women face are less severe. That is, can we make the labor market change to benefit women rather than can we change women's or society's preferences to address these gender differentials. And to us, or, or at least to me, this seems like a more natural or policy-oriented way of going about this major issue. So in this idea of changing the workplace so that it would be more favorable for women, the general perception is that female-friendly policies or policies that advance gender equality are usually costly for firms so that people are not necessarily willing to negotiate for them. So what was your approach? What did you focus on to investigate the role of labor market institutions. As you mentioned, we're thinking about how to change the labor market to benefit women. And the central question here is why aren't the workplaces better designed for women? And, you know, this includes why are firms keen on maintaining regions schedules or they're not flexible about whether someone works from home or they may discourage leave taking. And the obvious answer I think most people have in mind of why firms don't do what it takes. That is, let's say, in the case of a female-friendly workplace would be providing maternity leave or childcare or flexible work schedules is that it's inefficient, it's too expensive, it's flat out infeasible. Another less obvious answer, which is kind of where paper goes in, 
is that quote unquote the powers that be so that is you know whoever is setting the compensation structure in a firm simply does not prioritize the preferences of women even when doing so would be no less efficient so what we end up studying is unions because unions are a very natural way of exploring whether this less obvious answer holds some truth since unions are on one hand an important labor market institution about 20% of workers worldwide are covered by some collective bargaining agreement or CBA for short. So these are like the contracts that union negotiate with employers on behalf of workers, but also they constrain an individual's employer's discretion in setting workplace policies, right? So there's kind of like this agent that it's neither the firm or the worker that's kind of like constraining that discretion in setting compensation. So starting from the point of unions, any change to, let's say, a union's attentiveness to women's needs, what, you know, the title is collective bargaining for women. So like, think about like if we now start collective bargaining for women, this may now impact how workplace policies are set in the firms that are covered by the CBAs negotiated by these unions. So this change in priorities should affect some firms after this change, and it should not affect other firms. And this is very important because when we do empirical work in economics, we want to always have like a comparison group that we can use as a counterfactual for our treated group. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to explain one technical aspect of their research. And so the first step in your analysis is to identify what are the policies that women value and favor. You take what we call a revealed preferences approach. Could you please tell us how it differs from just asking women what they value and why you use that? So the point here is that if you simply asked people what they prefer, that there are very sophisticated ways of doing this that are more credible. But, you know, taking a simple survey in economics, we'd like to say sometimes that talk is cheap. So you could be asked something and you could just say something, but in real life, you wouldn't actually, let's say, pay money to get that additional benefit. So what we do is a revealed preference approach. And essentially what this means is that the actions that agents take in a real life setting reveal something about their preferences. So in this case, the, the action that we're thinking about is job switching by workers. And what is revealed by job switching is workers' preferences across firms. So we use this measure that we didn't develop. This was developed by Isaac Sorkin, where he essentially takes Google's original algorithm for ranking web pages, which is known as a page rank algorithm. And he created an analogous algorithm for the labor market. So the intuition here is, you know, just like more important websites are those that are likely to receive more links from other websites, the more valuable firms are able to attract job switchers, right? So then we take this measure, this page rank values of firms, and we do it separately for job switchers who are men and job switchers who are women. This gives us a measure of, let's say, the value or the utility that workers get from these firms. You could think of the gap between these two to be kind of how much women value this firm more than men. And then we try to explain that, like how much of that is predicted by differences in wages and also the type of amenities. And in this case, we measure amenities through the clauses that are in these collective bargaining agreements. So those clauses that are good at predicting that women value these firms more than men are the ones that we count as female-centric amenities or amenities that women value. So now that you constructed this measure of what the amenities that are favored by women, you want to investigate the role of unions in promoting certain aspects in the workplace. And to investigate this question, you use what we call in economics a natural experiment, which is basically a sort of policy reform. What is this reform doing exactly? 
So to start this paper, like the empirical part is all about Brazil. First thing to bring up, Brazil is a country that has large gender gaps. It also is a country that has extensive coverage from CBAs. So over 50% of workers are covered by some union agreement. So this natural experiment that gives us this, let's say, shift towards collective bargaining for women comes from kind of separate institution, which are known as union centrals. So a bit of context here is needed is that, you know, unions negotiate CBAs with employers on behalf of the workers, but unions can also affiliate themselves with union centrals, which are umbrella organizations that coordinate activities across unions. And they also set broader, let's say, bargaining priorities at national congresses. So the equivalent in the US of a union central would be the AFL-CIO. In the case of Canada, it's the Canadian Labor Congress. In Brazil, we're focusing on CUT, which is pronounced Gucci. Uh, so this union central Gucci in 2015, they made women a centerpiece of its bargain agenda in two ways. So the first was they instituted gender quota in the national and state boards. So they essentially reserved 50% of seats for women. It's important to know that this isn't seats at the local unions. This is kind of at a coochie level, but we do see spillovers to the local union boards. The second aspect of this reform that occurred in 2015 is kind of this collective bargaining for women component. They essentially published what is known as a fight plan, which is kind of what lays out their strategy going forward, what they're going to prioritize. And it focused on achieving gender equality through, let's say, extending maternity leave, considering childcare as a universal right. And also setting in writing, at least, that they want to include women in the discussions of the list of claims that are used to guide a CBA negotiation. This is kind of the natural experiment that we're focusing on. So in order to see the effect of this reform that changes both the composition of the leadership and the content of the platform, basically, you combine a series of data sets that are very specific to the context in Brazil. So what are the attractive features of these data sets that allows you to study this question? Brazil is really a fascinating country in general, but also the data makes it even more prone to you know, answer very interesting questions. So there are essentially three pieces of data that we use. One is linked employee-employee data. So this essentially allows you to track workers across jobs and see you know, not only attributes like gender or race, and uh, level education, but also their wages. Then there's the registry of collective bargaining agreements. So starting in 2009, all collective bargaining agreements, all these CBAs are put in this online webpage. So you can see through these CBAs that what are the different clauses that the union are negotiating that dictate workplace relations at a firm. So the nice thing about here is that the documents, you know, it's text, but all the clauses are already put into categories that allow one to simply know whether a clause is, let's say, related to maternity leave or related to wage increases, things of that nature. That's the second data set that when you add it to the linked employer-employee data means that not only can you observe the wages of these workers as they switch jobs, but you can also kind of observe this comprehensive list of non-wage components of compensation that they enjoy. And then the third component is uh, information on unions. So there's this includes information of the composition of the boards of these unions, importantly, which union central they are affiliated with, because that ends up being essentially what drives our critical approach is we're comparing these bargaining units where the union is a Kucha affiliate, those are our treated versus those that are not Kucha affiliated, those are our controls. And we essentially look at the evolution of outcomes over time for these two groups, estimating differential changes between them 
before versus after this policy change that occurred in 2015. And the underlying assumption here is that the outcome of the Kucha affiliate units would have evolved similarly to those of the non-Kucha affiliate units uh, had the policy not occurred. So yeah, here usually the falsification test for this assumption is to see whether outcomes evolve similarly prior to the policy change, so what is known as the parallel pretense, the differences identification strategy. The key variation that we're kind of able to take from the data is this a union's decision to affiliate to a specific union central. So essentially, this is another reason why Brazil is good for answering this question, is because to the extent that this decision is not determined by changes to a firm's labor demand or to workers' preferences, then we're okay. Because you would be worried that if, let's say, these kind of changes that favor women kind of arise endogenously, that is, from the workers themselves or from some change in the firm's objective function, something like that, then, you know, this chain, the policy isn't really what's driving these effects. But in the case of Brazil, this is practically given to us from the context because neither firms nor workers in the Brazilian context choose their unions. This is something that essentially is decided by the federal government, given this complicated structure. But just think about the federal government has already decided that anyone who is a particular type of worker in a particular geographic area is represented by this union and no one has a choice. So it's kind of, you know, the key variation we use, the identification strategy, the data gives us that sort of the institutional context a lot, like gives credibility to this strategy. The end, so what we end up having is a panel of establishment union pairs that are negotiating CBAs. So that's kind of like one panel. We also have a panel of establishments that are involved in CBA negotiations that are either impacted or not by the reform. So we can see changes in these establishments. And then also we see a panel of workers that are employed at these treated or controlled firms and we can track them across jobs. So all of these like three different panels are very useful in pin down the different potential effects that, that the reform could have. So basically combining these institutional details and these rich data sets, you're trying to test the sort of top-down effects of the changing priorities from central unions to workers' conditions. So what do you find in practice? The first initial step would be like, how do the collective bargaining agreements change you know, in paper, do these CBAs, the clauses that are negotiated change. Here we focus on these clauses that, as we mentioned, we measure as being valued by women. And we find that these clauses actually increase. So there are more of these, let's say, female-centric amenities. Also, as a share of the negotiated clauses, the CBAs now have more amenities valued by women than by men. So there seems to be some degree of trade-off occurring here. A large part of this effect is driven by clauses related to leaves and childcare. And moreover, I think that one of the interesting things that we find in this regard is that the effects are largest at places where women are not well represented at baseline. So that is workplaces where there are few women among employees and also where there are few women in the local union board, which suggests that representation matters. So that's the first set of results. The second is, you know, you could say things are changing in paper, but in practice, there's really nothing going on. Like, who cares? It's Brazil. Someone added some clause somewhere. No one's going to enforce that or it's not really going to change anything. So we try to see how the amenities affect the workplace environment. Uh, so here we look at, at three different measures. 
all of which we find positive effects. So we see an increase in the share of women among managers, suggesting an improvement in quality of opportunity. We also see an increase in the share of women who take extended maternity leave. So this is one of the key clauses that we actually see increase. We see in practice that women at these firms are now taking advantage or there's take up of this particular amenity. And we also see an increase in the probability that a woman who takes maternity leave returns to the same employer. So that means that they actually value returning and that their job is protected. So that's kind of like on the amenity side, which is, I think, one of the big innovations of this paper. Then we go to explore the things that one would usually look at, what, what your usual like average labor economist, like any labor economist would want to know. So we look at wages and we look at employment. And essentially, we don't find anything, which is quite interesting. Because if you believe that, you know, there's an increase in stuff that is given to workers, that something else must decrease. So the traditional kind of way of thinking about it would be that, let's say, wages would decrease, especially for women, or that less women would be hired because it's costly. As I mentioned before, like the first obvious answer is like, firms don't do this because it's costly, but we don't observe anything that is actually reflecting this. And then we see actually that women are less likely to leave the firm and there's no change for men. So again, think about revealed preferences. If you think that sticking to your job kind of reveals something about how much you like it, this could signal that women value these firms and that the value for men don't change. And we also see the share of women among workers who are queuing to these firms. So they're trying to enter these firms that increases as well. So again, this suggests that this approach to collective bargaining for women or these policy change makes affected firms more valuable for women. And so that's kind of like the main set of results we have. So you mentioned these intriguing results on wages and employment. So I wanted to have your thoughts on what could be the mechanisms that explain these results. So that's, I think, what was the most challenging thing for me personally. It took a lot of convincing that the results that we have were there, but they are there. Before going into this, I was skeptical about whether directives from an umbrella organization like a Union Central could have any, let's say, real impact, especially in a context where employers are likely to have the upper hand. So amenities are increasing. The thing in the back of most people's mind is something has to give. There is no free lunch. So how come wages and employment are not changing, right? So. The one thing that we do not observe directly in our data, unfortunately, is profits, firm profits. The only way we can proxy this is looking at firm closures, so whether the firm, let's say, disappears, and we don't find any effect there. But still, when one may think that profits of the firm are decreasing. So it's not that you increase amenities for women, it's not that they're decreasing their wages or anything like that, but simply the firm is now, let's say, having less of the pie that is shared between workers and firms. However, we don't think that this is the case, since the policy change is simply a shift in bargaining priority. It's not an increase in the union's bargaining power. So if the unions had become more powerful, then the theory would predict that the workers can extract more of the pie. But that is definitely not what is happening here. If this were the story, one would have to then explain why firms would concede to new female-centric demands from the union, right? That's kind of like, in itself, the fact that a simple change in bargaining priorities and is actually reflected in the CBAs is quite telling that to some degree the firm even likes the idea or is open to the idea of, of making these changes. So the more plausible story that we see, given the results, is that bargaining outcomes are just inefficient to begin with. So as an example, that the compensation structure was in some set giving things to workers that they did not value, but they were costly to the firm to provide nonetheless. So 
when you substitute these things for these female-centric amenities, which are highly valued by women, this made the firm more valuable for these women without making it less valuable for other groups, and let's say men in particular. You know, going into this, I hadn't really thought about that the employer, you know, may not be losing from these changes. And I think convincing other people that this is the case is the main challenge that the paper has going forward. And so you go one step further in that direction by discussing the overall welfare effects of that reform, of these changes. So I wanted you to discuss a little bit what you find in also what you think it tells us in terms of labor market policies that tackle gender inequality in general. To wrap up the paper, we write a simple model that can be mapped back to the data to see how the reform that we studied affected welfare for men versus women. It essentially uses information on labor income and employment shares across cooch and non-cooch establishments. And what we find is that women's welfare increases by about 7%, which is consistent with the evidence that we found on higher retention and queuing for women. And we also find negligible decrease in welfare for men. So this, you know, in the end kind of tells us that in fact, you know, there are ways, at least in this context, where some change from within, which I think is one of the interesting things of like why these things occur, but a change in the priorities of an important actor in the labor market can actually have positive effects or effects that improve working conditions for women. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendation you would like to share with our listeners, like a book, a film, anything you'd like to talk about. I was very big into movies as a teenager, and I would go to this film festival in, in Mexico City, where I'm from, and try to get into film and, you know, watch like three to four movies a day. And, you know, many of these movies are very bad, but others are very good. And there was one that stuck with me. It's a movie that kind of put into perspective a lot of the complicated power dynamics that operate in a firm. It's called The Boss of It All. It's a comedy. It's by Lars von Trier, but it's nothing like your average Lars von Trier film. So even if you hate his other movies, if you know who he is, This one is worth watching. And the premise is as follows. So there's an owner of an IT company in Denmark that wishes to sell it. But for years, since he founded the company, he has pretended that the real boss is someone that lives in the US and communicates with the staff only via email. So that way, all the unpopular decisions, the things that workers hate, he can attribute it to the real boss, you know, the boss of it all, while all the popular things come out from him directly. So like all the employees love him. But now the issue is that the prospective buyer insists on meeting the big boss in person so then the owner ends up hiring a failed actor to play this imaginary boss and the actor you know is very true to the art of acting and ends up like improvising all his lines rather than you know follow the owner's direction and chaos ensues so it's a comedy but like going back to the firm dynamic part for me i think it's this idea of a ghostly boss that i find actually quite intriguing economic realities manifest themselves in a workplace they have to and When employers have all the decision-making power, as is usually the case, something has to embody that force. So it's usually a horrible boss or it's like the management board or something. But I just found this idea of a fake boss to be a genius tool for like exploitation. The actual owner could extract super useful information from employees since he was trusted by everyone, while at the same time use that information to benefit himself and sell out of the firm. So this all kind of like goes to show that one should be very wary of very nice bosses. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was great. Really nice to have you with me today. Thank you, Clementine. It really was a pleasure. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Vanifanter in Toronto. 
I want to thank Clémentine Benoît for editing this episode. Music is by the count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.